the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance podcast. In this episode, I speak to neuroscientist and medical doctor, Dr. Russell Kennedy. Russell's work focuses on helping people recover from anxiety. He's the author of a fantastic book on the subject, Anxiety Rx, which I highly recommend. In this episode, we discuss how to find the stress in your body, how to connect with your true self, and how to align your mind and body. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. Russell, here's my first question for you. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? For me, self-reliance uh, is building an inner strength that usually comes from childhood. Having a sense that you are whole and complete, your mind and your body are connected, and that you're operating as an agent for yourself, but you can also invite other people in to help you because we need other people to engage our social engagement system. I'm a neuroscientist, so I study how people interact. So social engagement system is eye contact, uh, facial expressions. I mean, the, the face is the only place in the human body where the muscles are attached directly to the skin. And that's because we can communicate with each other. Our faces say a lot, tone of voice, prosody of voice, that kind of thing. Um, there's a part of the brain called the superior temper gyrus, uh, the insula, which kind of connects mind and body together. So this starts when we're born. When we're first born, we interact with our mothers that way, with this social engagement system. And we mature this social engagement system because our relationship with our mothers and our relationships with the people that are close to us as we grow up mature that social engagement system. And as that social engagement system helps us deal with others and connect with others, we transpose it as we become older into a connection with ourselves. So if we don't have the connection with the other, it's very difficult to develop that connection with ourselves. So if you grow up with, you know, a parent, my dad was schizophrenic, you know, I understand your mom was alcoholic, you know, like it's, it's one of these things where it's, if you don't get that connection, that social engagement system doesn't mature. So it's very difficult to develop that relationship with yourself because the, the relationship you have with other people can be no better than the relationship with you have yourself. So, when I hear self-reliance, I kind of think on one level, it's like, yes, it's being independent. It's being, it's being solid in your foot. It's your, your mind and your body are connected. You're, you're op operating as a whole being. But you, you need other people to actually operate as a whole being. So it's this dichotomy that I see um, because there is this push in Western society to be you know, independent and self-reliant and I think, and I think that that comes from childhood. If you, if you have a compromised childhood, that's difficult, but I think things like martial arts, anything that, you know, works your mind and your body together allows you to connect. So I'm an anxiety expert. So my, my thing is that anxiety, all anxiety is separation anxiety and it's separation from yourself. So if you're not, if you're not whole, this comes back to the whole self-reliance thing. If you're not whole and self-reliant, you're sitting duck for anxiety, depression, OCD, all this kind of stuff. So when I hear self-reliance, I got to get, you know, part of me is like, yes, you know, puff out my chest, you know, be self-reliant. But the other really acknowledges the fact that we've needed people all along to build that neurological structure and a structure in our body that allows us to be that self-reliance is a luxury, you know, that a lot of us don't get these days. You know, there's a lot of stress in the world. So I see a lot of kids being raised without this real connected parent. And you know, their, their self-reliance is gonna struggle because they didn't develop the, the, the brain and body structure that allows that, that to develop in the first place. So that's a very long answer to your question. So self-reliance, yes. And the more you practice it, and this is what I love about you know, martial arts, the more you practice that mind-body connection, the more self-reliance just becomes a natural byproduct 
of that connection of your mind and your body. Because once your mind and body are split, it's very, very difficult to develop self-reliance that, that isn't cognitive. That isn't like, okay, I'm going to go out there today. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to, rather than just coming from this inner knowing that you've practiced from being connected with your mind and your body, once you have that inner knowing, you don't really need that bravado so much. So again, a very long, a long answer to uh, your initial question. No, no, that's a great answer. There's a lot there. So let's try to unpack some of that. First uh, thought for me was, as you noted, we both came from difficult backgrounds and, and our upbringing. That had a huge effect on my experience and especially as an adult. If it wasn't for martial arts, I'm not sure where I would have ended up. So definitely that was my saving grace. The martial arts, as you noted, was a very pinnacle part of my experience and embodying myself and understanding myself because I felt that I was completely separated. I understand completely what you're saying about being in this place of total anxiety and really what that comes down to is that, like you noted, that separation from self. And for me, it was that when I was growing up, I felt like the odd one out. Like I didn't fit into the norm, into the standard kind of, you know, the box that everybody was in. I was like the kid on the outside, which made things even worse, right? So you've got this dysfunctional household and then you go into the outside world and you don't fit there too. And for the longest time, the way that I described it was, I don't know if you've ever had this experience or anybody else listening to this, but I would walk down the street and one of the things I would find myself doing is I'd always put my hands in my pockets. And the reason I would do that is because I felt odd in my body, like I felt disassociated, like I was there, but I wasn't part of it, if that makes sense. And I think this speaks to what you're talking about, right? This idea of, you know, anxiety as a separation from self. Yeah. And I think that's the, the problem we're having with the kids. Uh, the teenagers and their screens, because we need a certain amount of social engagement, face-to-face social engagement to mature this system. So if we're getting all our feedback from screens, which are two-dimensional and don't really relay, you know, the energy behind it, you know, we can see the face, but it's not really the same as being in front of someone. You know, and that's the problem, again, with COVID these days is we're not really right in front of each other anymore. A lot of our communications is through screens, which for an adult, as long as you had that when you were younger is okay. But these kids aren't even getting that. So their their social engagement system, Dr. Dan Siegel, who's a child psychologist, he also calls it the human resonance circuitry. So if this human resonance circuitry doesn't mature with face-to-face interaction, those kids have a hard time connecting to others and as I was saying before, have a very difficult time connecting within themselves. So what they do is they they get into anxiety, they get into depression, and then what do they do? They go back to their screens because they get the dopamine hit. They don't get the long-term oxytocin. Like when you get a hug from someone, 20 seconds or so, you get this oxytocin, which gives you this feeling of, you know, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm connected. I'm part of the world. Whereas when you tap on Snapchat, you get a quick dopamine hit. So what we're doing in the society is we're exchanging dopamine short term for oxytocin, which is kind of long term, you know, feeling content with your life kind of thing. So of course, when they get stressed, they're going to go right back to their phones and create more of the problem that created the problem in the first place. So, you know, building off that, I was just thinking as well, you know, although I'm talking about this idea of self-reliance, I mean, the the whole, you know, the title of this podcast is the art of self-reliance. But when when I talk to people about it and other guests that I've had, I, I make the point and they've made the point too, is that When we say being self-reliant, we're not saying that in a kind of narcissistic kind of way. What we mean is, yes, you need to be, you know, you need to be in charge of your own experiences, but as you noted, you need to do it with other people. One of the consequences that I see as well, outside of obviously technology and you noted the screens and that kind of disassociation that it creates, we're also, especially in the Western world, in a society where we continuously push towards individuality. And, you know, this kind of notion that you, you need to make it completely on your own and it doesn't matter who you have to railroad in the process to get there. And so in a way, we're actually not really in community anymore either as well. So we've got that and we've got, you know, the, the technology, which is, you know, separating us from each other. Yeah. And dividing us all the time. Schwarzenegger talked about that when I heard him do an address saying, you know, I was introduced as the self-made man. And I'm not a self-made man. Like I had my mother who, you know, helped me with my homework. I had my dad who was around, you know, supporting me 
emotionally. I had all these other people. I had, I slept on people's gym floors, you know, like I had all these people supporting me. And sure enough, I mean, the guy learned a new language and became a governor of one of the, the states. Uh, but, you know, he had other people helping him. But again, I think that comes down to when he was younger, he had that social engagement system. He had his mother. He had somebody, you know, really making that ground nice and fertile so that he could keep growing on that. And you point, as you point out, what we're doing in the society now is we're dividing each other. We're making every man for himself. And, you know, the United States is probably the, the hallmark of that particular attitude. And look what's happening to them. I mean, they're just, they're, they fight about everything. I mean, it's the only the only country that has, you know, weapons of war in their national anthem. I don't know any other country that has bombs and rockets right in their national anthem. I mean, it's just, it's just part of, you know, I'm a comedian, so I, I, I pick up stuff like this. Like, I look at stuff and I go, that doesn't make sense. You know, in your national anthem, it should be like, we're proud of ourselves. We've done well. Uh, we're, we're not talking about blowing other people to bits. So I think, you know, where, where self-reliance became really important for me is going back to my childhood. I mean, my experience was that I couldn't be reliant on anybody. I mean, my mother was unreliable. Um, you know, I just didn't fit in. The school teachers were horrendous. It just wasn't a great experience for me. And so that I, you know, I really took that on board that in order for me to move forward in life, I'm going to have to be pretty much, I'm on my own, right? And I need to, I need to get through on my own. Where I think things changed for me was, as I noted, was martial arts. And in that sense, probably the best thing that I ever did was become an instructor because that's where I started to develop that social bonds. That's where I started to realize how important it is to be in relationship with other people. And my way of creating that relationship was by teaching others and by helping others and by sharing, you know, the, the struggles that I've gone through and the lessons that I've learned. And so that was a really good thing for me. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's what comes, I mean, I have this sense that if you don't get it from like when you're a child, you're kind of, your hands are kind of reaching up to get help, right? If you don't get that help, you don't learn how to be, I don't, I don't want to be insubordination, but, but submissive, right? So what we do a lot of times when we don't get our needs met when we're younger is we become the teacher. We, we, we go over the parent and we kind of start parenting the parent. I don't know if you did that with your mom. I certainly did it with my dad. So we become very familiar and confident in that role as teacher but when it comes to being student again, it can, it can take us back to that time that we weren't supported. So it's, you know, you go for what you know. And clearly, I mean, you're a visionary. I mean, I can see that in you. Uh, you know, I do have some sort of clairsentient energy reading ability as much as saying that as a medical doctor makes you want to have a seizure. But the thing about us visionaries is we do often have tough childhoods. That's part, you know, the people that don't have tough childhoods, the people that don't have addictions, don't change the world. You know, because things, if you grow up, your social engagement system is all locked in and nice and happy. There's no need for you to go outside that comfort zone. And it's a, it's a, those of us that have had trauma and have overcome the trauma and have lessons. Uh, but we realize like you look back and you go, your life could have been preordained. It could have been, look, your childhood's not going to be that good. Right. You know, it's just, you know, they have a little chat with you before you're born and say, your childhood's not going to be that good. Uh, you're going to overcome it. You're going to teach, you know, thousands of people, that kind of thing. But this is kind of how it's going to go. And I know I felt like a, mis a misfit as a, as a child, too. I mean, being a boy, being sensitive. I mean, I used to, you know, I would cry when I was hurt until I was about six. You know, and of course, you know, the other, the other guys don't, they, uh, they beat that out of you pretty fast. You know, so when I look back at my childhood, I see exactly why it was, it had to be the way it was, because it, it does teach you to look at, a different part of the world and I think that it's true with comedians too most of my friends who are comedians had childhood trauma because we had to look at the world in a very different way and that different way when you present that different way to someone else it can be really funny and I think that's a lot of comedy comes from pain and a lot of comedy comes from childhood wounding <laughs> totally agree so you know just thinking about you know somebody listening to this let's get practical for a second Regardless of how somebody got to the point where they are now, but let's say people, you know, a person listening to this is completely stressed out. Let's talk about what's really driving that, right? In my experience, what I noticed is, and this is a culmination of stuff, but let me just use one example. For the longest time, I had this anxiety that was just running all the time in the background. 
And I wasn't really aware of it until I found myself in a place that didn't require me to be on alert. So for example, right now I'm on the Isle of Man, which is a beautiful island. It's a great place. There's beautiful spaces that you can go out into. It's not a place that I need to worry about somebody that wants to hijack me like I did when I came from Johannesburg because that's where I lived all my life, right? And suddenly I'm aware that this anxiety is running hot. And so then I realized, you know, how my sympathetic nervous system had become programmed to just run at a high level all the time. And so one of the things, and that's what I'm interested in and what I want to talk to you about, because you noted that one of the things we want to talk about is how do we find that stress in our body? I find that fascinating because I think that's a very different way of approaching it. Most people have this assumption that if they want to make any kind of change, they've got to change the way that they think. But I think that's only part of the story, right? It's like, if you don't know what's happening in your inner state, the, the way that I describe it to people is your inner state dictates your fate. And that, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I don't even like the term anxiety. I don't think it has a lot of meaning. If I ask 10 people, what is anxiety? Four of them won't even know. Six of them will probably give me some strange answer about sweaty palms or racing thoughts or whatever. So I use the term alarm. So with my patients, you know, they say, oh, I'm feeling really anxious today. And I say, you know, and they go, okay, I'm feeling really alarmed today. So, you know, if you, if you struggle with alarm or anxiety or whatever you want to call it at this point, and you're out with a friend and they say, how are you doing? And you say, I'm feeling really anxious today. They may not know what you're talking about, but if you say, look, I'm really feeling alarmed today. My body is really feeling alarmed today. And one of the things I do with my patients is I get them to find their alarm because we worship, we worship the mind in this society. We live in a ne neck up society. So we assume that any angst must be coming from our head. And I, I put in this in my book is that if you were just a brain who was fed blood and cerebrospinal fluid, would you feel anything? Because I've been in on neurosurgeries. I've assisted on neurosurgeries where we cut right into the brain. The brain has no pain fibers itself. All we have to do is anesthetize the scalp and the skull. So there's no pain fibers in the brain. The pain comes from our body. So what I do is I get people to, you know, bring up a, you know, a trauma from their past in a way. And, you know, and I can do it with you right now if you've got a second. Sure. Yeah. I mean, think of a trauma that you had. Don't go for number one. No, like, don't go for a huge one. But think of a trauma that you've had. And uh, just close your eyes for a sec, Rod, and just sort of think of that trauma and bring it to mind. And then focus on your body. Like, do you feel something in your body? You know, some people feel a pressure, pain, ache, you know, hot, cold. Usually it's around, it's around the midline somewhere between your chin and your pubic bone, typically. Yeah, that's exactly where it is. Yeah. I would say it's right here, just, just by my sternum. Yeah. I can feel it like slightly to my heart side, but it's there. I can feel it. Yeah. And, and, and is it, does it have sharp borders or is it kind of ill-defined and diffuse or? Ill-defined. Okay. And if, if it had a, a texture to it, it would it be like coarse or would it be smooth or? Coarse. Okay. Temperature, hot, cold? Hot. Okay. So hot, coarse, sort of ill-defined sensation around your heart, solar plexus area. So what I would say to you is that's your younger self. That's the, that's the part of you that was walking through Joe Berg with his hands in his pockets. And that's the part of you need to connect to. So when you feel alarm, exciting, whatever you want to call it, put your hand over that spot, you know, and, and really reassure yourself. It's like, I've got you. You know, and again, as a medical doctor, this stuff, you know, kind of freaks me out a little bit, but it, it's one of the things that sort of come through me over the last few years. And it's really paying attention to that connection because that alarm could be your inner child or younger self or whatever you want to call it, kind of with his hands up, like reaching for you. And typically what we do is we go into our heads, we try and think it away, we'll distract, you know, shopping, uh, internet news, porn, uh, alcohol, whatever. We'll get away from that. So if you had a child who came up to you with their hands up like that, like pick me up, hold me, and you pushed it away and went off to do, you know, Facebook, how, what do you think that child's going to do? They're either going to shut down completely or they're going to overreact. So the alarm is going to bubble, bubble, bubble up and get huge. And then it'll just shut down. So it's really what I teach people is like, that's your anxiety. That, that alarm is your anxiety. So the more you can connect with that, the more you become whole and the more you become whole, the less your sympathetic nervous system has to go into this fight or flight reflex, this hypervigilant, I can't, you know, I can't let my guard down because I never know what's going to happen. And I see this a lot with, with people who have had uh, parents who are alcoholics, parents who are sick, 
when they walked into the house, they never knew what they were going to get. You know, this hypervigilance. So your, your sympathetic nervous system, it's kind of like, it's almost like combat PTSD. Your mind knows that things are probably going to be okay, but your body doesn't. Your body keeps the score. Bessel, Bessel van der Kolk uh, talks about that. A psychiatrist from Boston, he wrote that book called The Body Keeps the Score. So my whole focus, I mean, not the whole focus, but most of my focus is in finding that alarm in your body and really focus on connecting to that and not so much on a verbal level to, I have this little mantra that I use called sensation without explanation. So I find that area and I just sit there with it and I watch my mind's compulsive need to try and make sense of it. Cause your mind is just a meaning making make sense machine. That's really all it is. So when it, when it reads this uncomfortable feeling in your solar plexus, it's going to make a negative story out of it because it does feel negative. And then when you make a negative story or worry out of it, then the body reads that worry as if it's happening and creates more alarm, which creates more worry. So you get into what's called the alarm anxiety cycle. So what I do with people is I get them to focus specifically on their alarm and try and focus on as much sensation as they can without adding thoughts to it. Because as soon as you add thoughts to it, it becomes this runaway train. And the kicker on that is that your brain will try and convince you that you can think your way out of anxiety. You can think your way out of a feeling problem and you can't, you have to feel your way out. And that's the problem I see with most therapies for anxiety is that they, they talk about the issue and it's, you know, insight is the popcorn of psychotherapy. Knowing why I know why I was anxious. I grew up with a, a schizophrenic father. You know why you had your stress. You grew up with an alcoholic mother. You know, we know why, what we don't know is how, how to connect, how to, how to, how to re repatch together that fundamental disconnect that happened when we were children. So when you, um, you know, doing this process that we just went through and you talked about it, which I think is very powerful. And I totally agree just from my own work, this idea of getting into your feelings, you mentioned the sympathetic nervous system. Some people listening to this are not going to know what that is. So we can maybe, we can maybe unpack that, but do you find, and I mean, maybe you don't have necessarily the research for this, but just, even if it's just your own experience, would you say that that engages the other side of the autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system, which brings you back to that homeostasis, that calming effect that you're looking for? Yeah. Once, you, once that child in you feels connected, they, they can shut off the alarm. And that's what happens. Is like when it, and you have to practice it because initially the child is very resistant. This is one of the things uh, that I talk about called defensive detachment, which is a term from Dr. Gordon Neufeld, who's a developmental psychologist, which is if you don't trust love when you're growing up, if your parent was inconsistent or abusive, when you get close to love again, you're afraid to have it because of what loving meant as a child. When I loved my dad and he would come back from the mental hospital and he'd be okay for months at a time, and then he would start going crazy again. After he did that three or four times, I thought, you know, it's not safe to love this guy. So I transpose that onto all my relationships. I've been married three times, you know? So it's, it's one of those things where when I got close to love, it, my alarm went up. So uh, what I'm saying is it takes a while before you make that connection with that, that child, because that child is very resistant to connect with you. A, because you've probably not known they were there. You know, you, you've probably been trying to treat it in your head for the whole time. And B, it's, it's, it's difficult to do because that, that child is kind of like, ah, loving you isn't safe. So it's a slow kind of process. I talk about the, the stone cutter, you know, this, the story of the stone cutter where, you know, there's this stone cutter in this uh, ancient kind of time and he's hammering away at this rock, but the, the chisel he has to use is huge because it's a huge rock and the hammer he has to use, so he can only do three or four blows a day. And then he, he, hits, a, he hits the thing about 99 times and then someone walks by and on the hundredth time he hits it and the stone breaks in half. And the person watching goes, wow, you must be the best stone cutter in the world. You, you cut that up with one blow. So I'm saying to connect with that alarm, to connect with that child, you need to be like the stone cutter. You need like a hundred times. You've got to keep doing it and doing it and doing it and showing that child in you that it can trust you because it couldn't trust when you were younger. And once you get that, once you start developing that mind body connection, that, that trust from you, the you you are now, and the you that you were then, and you, once, once you join those two together, then, then you become self-reliant. 
Yeah, that's true. And just so the audience knows, I mean, we mentioned your, your father a few times and he suffered from schizophrenia and bipolar, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he would be, he would be okay. Like I remember up until I was about 10, he was okay. And then we moved out to Victoria, British Columbia in Canada, just on the West coast of Canada. And uh, he got admitted to hospital then I was about 12, I guess. Um, I talk about this in my book when I was about 13, uh, he tried to commit suicide. And I, I remember, you know, I still remember looking out the window and watching the ambulance take him away after a suicide attempt and just feeling completely bereft. And, and that's when I, I said to myself, you know, one day I'm going to make this mean something. And I think that's why I became a doctor and a neuroscientist and a yoga and meditation teacher and, and all that kind of thing. And I wrote this book because I, I really want to make a difference. I don't want, a, you know, someone having to sit there and, and have to go through that again. And a lot of what I think gets taught in classical therapy is not necessarily wrong because we do need a, a coherent narrative of our lives. We do need a story in there, but I think they rely 90% on story. And maybe if you're lucky, 10% on, on what's going on in the body. It's so rare to see a, um, a um, psychologist who really focuses on the body. My wife is a somatic trauma uh, therapist. So she's finishing her or finished, excuse me, her somatic experiencing training through Dr. Peter Levine's Institute. So, so she, she and I have lots of talks about how to connect with that inner child, how to make it feel safe, how to pendulate between, this is another thing that we didn't talk about when, when we did yours, but when you feel that, that pain in your body, you know, try and find another place in your body that doesn't feel painful. Because typically when that alarm comes up, it overtakes everything. You know, you know if, you have a, if you have a wound, Basically, that's going to take a lot, uh, much of your consciousness is just focusing on that wound. But if, if you focus on another place, and I've had people focus on their elbow, you know, someplace that feels even neutral, and then just go back and forth between that feeling of, of being, you know, alarmed and a place in your body that doesn't feel alarmed, your breath, sometimes they'll use that. And just go back and forth just to show your unconscious. When you get into this alarm state, it isn't all there is. You know, there are other places in your body where it is safe. Because I think as a child, because we do regress when we go back into those things, when we have big fights with our partners, we regress back to the time where we felt helpless. And we are now, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old, waiting for our dad to come back or whatever. And we're not us. We, we're, we're, we don't have that wherewithal that we do now. So what I'm saying is find that child. When you get alarmed, put your hand over it, breathe into it, like really and try not to think too much about it. It's an unconscious, things have to be healed at the unconscious level. So the more talking in a way, the, the harder it, get, it makes it to really connect. And it's just this calm, quiet, you know, you can say, you know, I've got you, or, you know, you're here with me, I'm gonna look after you. Um, but even then, it's, it's kind of like just making this unconscious intention in a way, if there is such a thing, I don't even know if there is such a thing. Um, to connect with that part of you that's hurt, you know, and, and really, and, and just sit with it without trying to go, okay, well, you know, I was bullied, so that's the reason. Or really, without looking for a reason why he's hurt or she's hurt. Just, just feeling it, just being there with her and just really having that almost that unconscious thing where you not, no words are said, it's just that, you know, I'm here, I'm, I'm with you. You know, I know that's words, but it's just sensation without explanation is basically kind of what I get into. Yeah, I think that's very powerful. I was just thinking as you were talking. So one of the things that I did was, you know, coming from the experience that I did and just suffering from that alarm that was on all the time, 24-7, and being in an environment where I was surrounded by bullies and getting picked on all the time was one of the reasons I went into martial arts. And for a very long time, which is kind of interesting, is that although I was using my body and I should, should have known better how to use my body effectively, I was using it in all the wrong way. So rather than doing the work that you're suggesting now, I was using my body as a way to express more violence. And that was my coping mechanism to try to overcome that anxiety, so to speak, that I suffered as a child, only to realize much later on, and literally like in the last seven years, that I was going down the wrong path. And I had to make a complete turnaround and it's so interesting is that now just even though I still practice and, I, and I'm still a martial artist, 
the thought of actually engaging with people in that space where it's that physical dominance no longer holds an appeal for me. It's just something that I find, you know, it just, it, I just can't do it anymore. And it's kind of an interesting turnaround for me. And part of that was going back to school, educating myself, doing my doctorate in essence in mindfulness. And a lot of what you're talking about of just sitting with what is happening without having to explain it is this idea of being mindful with what is arising. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in, in a lot of my teachings, I think mindfulness kind of, you know, it gets you right to the edge and then it just sort of, it falls short in that you, you have this mindful setup where you, you've calmed your mind, you're in the center of the body. That is the time that you are compassionate, loving, connected to yourself. So it's not just about being mindful. It's not just about, you know, watching the different colors in the room and feeling your butt on the chair or, you know, the sensation or the smells. That's part of it. But I feel like that stops short. I think that when you're in that state, that's the time where you, you say, okay, now, how can I connect with all of me? How can I connect with that, that part of me that was singing in the school play and, and got embarrassed because they, fought, they forgot their lines? How can I, you know, make peace with that kid who got slapped in the back of the head by his dad in the grocery store and was totally embarrassed? You know, how can I, that's the time to use it, you know? So that's why I feel about one of the things I have about mindfulness. I think it's wonderful I just think that you're in this perfect position at that point to really start connecting with yourself rather than just staying in that moment. It's like, yes, absolutely stay in that moment. But then at that point, take it one step further and go, okay, I'm in this mindful place. How can I really connect with that younger part of me that may still be hurting inside, may still be alarmed? So yeah, that's very interesting that you say that. So one of the things that I did in my research was that I, the way that I described it was mindfulness in action. And I took an embodied perspective. So rather than just purely looking at it from a cognitive standpoint, what I wanted and what I did with the people that I worked with, and I worked specifically with leaders, but what I did with them was to get them into that mindful space, as you described, but then to do something. And what I asked them to do were embodied actions. Now that could be just breath work as an example. So that's one of the things that we shifted into. So we went from being in a state that you weren't really happy with, you then put yourself into more of a mindful presence, which gives you the distance and the space that you need to then choose a different behavior. And the behavior that I asked them to choose was breath work. As an example, there were other things that we did. And so just by learning to do that, they started to realize, and coming back to what I said early on, right? My tagline often is your inner state dictates your fate. And so if you can learn to manage your inner state more effectively in one way is through this idea of mindfulness with some action, as you noted, right. Then you can completely change the outcome of your experience. Yeah. Yeah. And getting back to what you said earlier, you know, it, it seemed like you were kind of in a way kind of judging yourself for getting into, you know, martial arts where it was kind of aggressive and kind of violent and that kind of thing. That was exactly what I meant about early on. Like we can't go from, from a flat footed, position to loving ourselves or anyone else unconditionally right we have to go through the body and we have to do it gradually like the stone cutter so i think the read i get from you is that that was your way of, of engaging with your body first because you know maybe engaging with your body in a very loving kind of connected way wasn't available to you initially right so that was your path to kind of come around the backside and then and then integrate that into a place where now you are you know, and, and, and the fact that you're not interested so much in the violence thing means that you've integrated a lot of that trauma, you know, because if it's not a trigger for you anymore, or if it's not a desire to, to, to fulfill anymore, it means you've integrated it. And that's, you know, when we can start integrating our old traumas, you know, like I still feel responsible for my mother. She's 87 and she, I'm a doctor. So anytime she feels ill of any kind, she'll call me, right? So she'll usually go, oh, and, uh, hi, mom. It's like, oh, I'm just not feeling well today. And I've got, the, I've got nausea. And it's like, in my mind, I'm like, oh, you know, this is annoying. But then I have to kind of just kind of see her for the child that, that, that she is and just sort of sit there and listen to her. And often it's not so much that I have to fix her. It's just that she needs to be heard, you know. And I think that's so true with with, with our inner child too. It just really needs to be heard. We've been stuffing it down, especially men. We've been stuffing it down for so long that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, 
doesn't feel hurt. And, and we don't make an active, an active process to, to, to look for it, to find it, and to sort of connect with that part of ourselves. And as long as we don't do that, it will stay in this immature form, which will cause us a lot of alarm and a lot of grief. And that's my whole thing about treating people with anxiety, because I suffered with it for many years myself, is just it comes from that younger part of you. It doesn't come from the part of you that's an accomplished, you know, martial artist, speaker, all that. that that's the part of you that you've, you've learned the lesson and you've grown from. But that part of you that, you know, is walking down the street with his hands in his pockets, um, you know, is still in you. Yeah, and no, I think your analysis is 100% correct. And, and again, it took me 20 years, two decades to get to this point, to have this realization. It's the stone cutter, right? I mean, it's, it, took, it doesn't just happen overnight. I think you're absolutely right. There is no way that I could have gone into a space of loving and compassion coming out from what I came from. Really, that going into the martial arts and focusing purely on the fight, so to speak, was the one way for me to kind of try to come to grips with what was happening. And it's taken me two decades to figure out that actually, you know, what I was looking for. <laughs> so yeah. it's, there's no quick fixes, right? And that's, that's what people do. It took me four decades. So you're 20 years ahead of me. You know, I did my first, uh, you know, I, I found a lot of this on um, when I took LSD. I've taken a few of the psychedelics, not a lot. You know, uh, I haven't done many uh, experiences on it, but when I took LSD, that's when I started finding this alarm in my body because I was really focused on, you know, treating my mind, how is my mind overreacting and trying to trying to suppress the thoughts or, or trying to, you know, redirect the thoughts into something positive, which was, you know, as you say, your body is going to determine what you think. So if my body's in constant alarm and hypervigilance, trying to think in opposition to that is like Sisyphus pushing up the rock. Like you're never, you're never going to reach the end of that. It's just a, a complete war. So it was just kind of just retreating, relaxing, just knowing that things are going to be okay if I just connect with myself. And it took a while. Like it really took a while to, to get into that self-connection place. And I still practice it every day. And, you know, I'll say that to, to your listeners, you know, when you're feeling anxious, alarmed, find it in your body. Like, you know, put your hand over that, breathe into it, like really connect to that. I mean, out of all of the things that I tell people, the other thing that I say is if you're going to think a thought, I'm not that crazy about people thinking thoughts, I'd rather them just go into the sensation of their body. But if you're going to think a thought, think, am I safe in this moment? Works in the middle of the day, the middle of the night, Anxiety is always about the future. It's always about something that may or may not happen, some sort of prognostication of evil that's going to happen in the future. So if you bring yourself precisely into the, into the moment, put your hand on that area of alarm, bring yourself into, the, into the, the core sensation, then you know and you'll realize that you are actually safe in that moment. And then for some people, it's the first time they've actually allowed themselves to feel safe because they've, they've felt like they've had to keep this vigilance up because, of, you know, it's almost like combat PTSD. There's always this sense that you could be killed at any moment. So your body keeps reacting like, you know, you could be killed at any moment, but your mind knows it's not. So it's a matter of just, even if you just say for a few seconds, am I safe for the next five seconds? Yeah. Am I safe in this moment? Well, this moment's all you have. So if you're ever really, really stressed about something, just ask yourself, I know, I know you're really stressed right now, but are you safe, like in this moment? Are you safe? Like in the moment, I, I know, you know, in two weeks, you've got to speak in front of a crowd and then you've got this huge exam coming up in two days. But right now, right in this moment, are you safe? And then when you acknowledge yourself that you actually are safe, that, that uh, sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight nervous system can stand down. And then you, the alarm drops in your body. And when your alarm drops in your body, and you get more relaxed. Your thoughts don't look nearly as ominous as they do when your body is in alarm. So your body will dictate, you can have the same exact thought. And if your body's relaxed, thought won't bother you. If your body's, you know, hyperreactive and sympathetic fight or flight, that thought will seem way, way, way worse than what it really is. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. So how do we then connect with our true self? I mean, what do, what do you mean by the true self? I, I think that can kind of be slippery for yeah. some people. Well, now, we'll get, uh, now we're going to go into the philosophical part. I mean, we're all born innocent, right? I mean, even Trump was born innocent. So what happens is if we don't get our needs met, 
as children. You know, if we don't get our attachment needs met as children, we develop these coping strategies. Narcissism is a coping strategy. Anxiety is a coping strategy. So we develop these kind of offshoots to kind of get our needs met in a backhanded way because we can't get them, we can't get them met naturally. And those become personality traits and they get ingrained in us over the course of time because they do work. Worry for a child does work. It does give you this illusion because kids worry, okay, I wonder if my mom's going to be drunk and I get home and she's not. It's like, oh, so what was happening immediately before you opened that door was you were all hyped up and worried. And then when you found out that everything was okay, you get this hit, this rush of, oh, everything's okay. And what were you doing just before that? You were worrying. So you were operantly conditioning yourself to worry. So, you know, when you worry and it doesn't come true when you're younger, Worry starts becoming this kind of go-to. Now, consciously, you know, worry doesn't do much, especially as an adult. But as a child, and you worry about something, and that worry doesn't happen, A, you get a dopamine hit when it doesn't happen, and B, you get this sense of like, okay, I guess the worry did something. So unconsciously, you keep repeating it. So we're all born innocent, getting back to the original thing. And it's just really seeing your innocence. There's nothing you said, thought, did to anyone that hasn't been said, thought, or done to anyone in millions and millions of times. You're not special. Your shame is not special. But we think it is. We think that we're, you know, what we've done is the worst thing in the world. And like I said, whatever you that thought, thought, said, or did has been done millions of times before you and will be done millions of times after you. So it's realizing that at your core, you're an innocent soul. And any faults, you know, or personality traits that you don't like, were adaptive. You needed to get to develop those personality traits to get your needs met. And it's, and then we judge ourselves for it negatively. And then that just starts this whole cycle of, of, you know, self-separation. It's like, okay, well, you know, I had to become um, a worrier as I grew up. So now, and then I judge myself, well, you know, you're, you're so weak for having to worry about everything, man, you're weak, you know, and that just, the cycle just continues. So whatever your negative personality traits or what you perceive as negative about yourself, just realize that you probably had to adopt that trait or behavior to survive, to get your needs met in kind of, like I said, a backhanded way because you weren't getting them met naturally. So it really becomes this philosophical question of seeing yourself as an innocent soul and not judging, abandoning, blaming, or shaming yourself, what I call jabs, judgment, abandonment, self, uh, blame, and shame because those things will keep you locked in that behavior. So when you start connecting with yourself, you don't need to judge yourself anymore. You don't need to abandon yourself anymore. You don't need to blame or shame yourself anymore because you realize you're just a human being. The things that you've done that are bad, you did because you had to try and get your needs met somehow. And, and that's where I see about the connecting with yourself is just realizing that your negative traits are there, one, to teach you something and to point you in the direction of where your pain is, and two, it's, it's, it's a way of connecting with yourself. You can actually, you know, when you do talk to your inner self, say, you know, I know you had to develop a little bit of narcissism because, you know, your parents didn't pay attention to you. You needed the attention. So, but that, and that's okay. And that's okay. We just realize that that's part of us and we embrace it because as Brene Brown says, you can't change anything that you don't embrace. So the, neg the negative, I'll say one more thing. The negative parts of you, um, if you judge them, you're locked in them. But if you accept them and even embrace them, and Kyle Cease, the comedian kind of transformational speaker, he says stuff like that. Like he'll say, um, I don't know if he uses this term, like I'm a narcissist and I love that about myself. He'll say, you know, I'm this, like what we consider negative. And then at the end of it, he goes, and I love that, you know, about myself or whatever. So it really, you know, turns it around 180 degrees as to how you look at yourself. Because if you can accept that part of you that you've been shaming and, and blaming and abandoning yourself for, then you can start really connecting. And when you really connect with yourself, that's true self-reliance. So when I think back to my childhood and we're talking about true self, there was a time there before I became aware of all the problems, before I became aware of my mom's problems and the neighborhood and the kids and everything else. It's probably just before six. And I can actually remember what the feeling used to feel like to be me. And it was a moment, it was a time of awe, of 
I just felt in tune with, with the world. I was excited when I, you know, learned or discovered new things. And if there was, you know, if it was, especially if it was holiday and I knew I was going to be able to do whatever I wanted to do the next day and climb trees, whatever that may be, I can remember those feelings. And so what I've been really working on over the last several months, and it's very difficult, I'm not going to lie, is trying to recapture that, trying to go back. So when I'm now, you know, out on a walk and I happen to be in this beautiful place, I try to remember if I was my six-year-old self, how would I feel about that? How would I, how would I engage with that experience and trying to just remind myself to try to go back to that? And that's really helped. I mean, it's slow progress, but it's helping. Yeah, and I think, and, and, and that is a cognitive way of doing it too. So what I would suggest to, at, at that point, Rod, is to, is to uh, go into that feeling like in a, in a, you know, a quiet time or whatever on your bed or whatever, and see where you feel that feeling of contentment in your body. Like, you know, usually again, it's usually in the midline, somewhere between your chin and your pubic bone and see if you can really, you know, go through that thing. Like, is it, is there, is it bounded? Is it, is there a texture to it? There's no hardcore science to it. It's basically just trying to get a real feel for what that sense of contentment really felt like in your body. And then when you feel that, if you, if you can sort of classify it and sort of hold it, then when you feel the alarm, see if you, you can pendulate or oscillate between that alarm feeling you have in your solar plexus and then this feeling of contentment that you have in your body. If you can go back and forth between those, it teaches your unconscious mind that you're not, you're not all encompassed by this alarm. There is actually a place in you that's calm, that's peaceful, that's, that's quiet. And then, then, then you teach your unconscious, which is where all these programs are. You teach your unconscious at the level that was encoded of peace and, and, and calm. And it may not help right away, but it, it usually does. But it, it may not. But over the course of time, that that it's sort of it's it's like pouring a little bit of cold water and tea that's boiling hot so that you can drink it, right? So it's just it's 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 modifying that alarm sense with the feeling before because I'm you know one of the things about psychedelics is they kind of sometimes they will take people back to that exact place that you were describing before all this crap start developing there's one called ibogaine which they use for heroin withdrawal and people describe going back to this place of you know this is before all the crap went down this is before everything it's almost like there's a reset going on to take you back to that place and then you operate from that place as if you know the trauma had never happened so just there's really interesting research going on now in psychedelics as far as this kind of stuff goes and i think that's going to be the future i think somatic therapy like somatic, like interactive psychotherapy and psychedelics are going to be the two biggest things in psychotherapy in the next five or 10 years for sure. So this process that you're describing, Russell, that you just described now, is that what you mean by aligning your mind and your body? Because I'm assuming that's what you do. It's one of them. Yeah, one it's of them. one of them. You know, there's, there's, other, there's other ones that you can, there's other ones that are more cognitive. You know, like you can sort of sit in that quiet time, find that alarm spot and go, you know, I have a... Um, a patient that I work with and he said everything was fine until he came around the corner and saw the for sale sign on his parents lawn and then realized that they were actually getting a divorce the divorce was real so I get him to go back to that particular place find that sensation in his body and we work through that you know because we hold these traumas in our body you know we worship the mind and I know this is weird coming from a neuroscientist but we hold these traumas in our body and our mind only has a certain depth into that. You know, I said, you can't heal a feeling problem with a thinking solution. And you've got to get in the same room with that old program. So we sort of got him into semi-hypnotic state where he, where he felt that. And, he, and, you know, he could see the colors. It was a Remax sign, which is a real estate company here in Canada. And, you know, the colors, the red and the white and the blue. And, the, and the, even remember the realtor's name, like this stuff gets seared in his memory. So we just slowly went through that and then showed him how safe he actually was because that was the point where he split. So, and then we worked on that for quite a while. And then it was just like, then he could see that sign. And he said to this day, every time I see a Remax sign, it, it, it sends me, it triggers me. And then, and like you said earlier on, uh, where you don't need the need for the violence so much anymore he sees a sign now and he says, it's, it's not pleasant. You know, he says, but I, it, it triggers me that, that I need to look after myself. Like now I look at that sign and rather than, you know, being all upset about it, I look at it and go, Oh, okay. 
how can I connect with myself here? Which is basically, you know, true self-connection and true self-reliance. Like he doesn't need me anymore. The, the sign doesn't trigger him anymore. Mm. So as we come to the end, what words of wisdom would you want to leave us with? Anxiety is not anxiety. You know, anxiety is actually a state of alarm that you hold in your body. And as you say, you know, the way your body feels is the way you're, you're going to see the world. And it's really focusing on that alarm and connecting with that alarm because that alarm is your younger self. It is the part of you that probably went through some significant trauma that isn't integrated or healed yet or metabolized. And the only way, the best way of metabolizing that is with feeling, connecting to that feeling, and also having some therapy to sort of understand the story behind it. I'm not, I'm not against psychotherapy at all. What I am against is just only doing talk therapy, only doing psychotherapy. So I'm saying just really connect in your body and really start like the stone cutter, connecting with that younger self and realizing that that kid has probably been pushed aside for years, maybe decades. So they're not going to trust you right away. It's going to take them a while before you trust them. So you can, you can say, you know, it must have been really hard for you when you came around that corner and saw that, that sign on your parents' lawn. And I, I, I feel you, I'm with you. Like I, I have you now, you know, and we all have traumas from our childhood and we can talk to ourselves like that in quiet moments, calm yourself down and then just go through some of the traumas, you know, on one level, that's a thinking solution again. So on one hand, I want you just to feel it and just stay with it and just stay with the feeling and avoid thinking about it. But then after you do that for a while, then you can go into that. You know, it must've been really, really hard for you as a 12 year old boy coming around the corner on your bike and seeing that sign and then and then seeing what they say back to you um just and just and they may not say anything for a while and just but just stay in 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 quiet and then the last thing i'll leave you with is just is just wait there's no rush you know when you're connecting with your inner self there's no rush and in fact sometimes that child is waiting and waiting and waiting to make sure that it's safe so you have to outweigh them <laughs> because if you try and force it, it, it just doesn't come. They have to really trust you at an unconscious level. And that comes from connecting through your body. To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.